So talking to Muslim friends over the years, I've, I've met quite a common um, response that they have. They, uh, I talk about God's free offer of forgiveness um, through faith in Christ. And they say, surely that leads to immorality. If God, if God freely forgives you all your sins, past, present and future, God promises that all your sins are, are wiped out, then surely that means that Christians just go out and do, can do all sorts of horrible things and just come back, ask for forgiveness from Christ and all, all will be well. They say, no, what, what you need is a healthy understanding of the law of God, of the judgment of God, of the fear of hell to transform um, human beings. See that amongst Christians uh, a little bit, or, or other people observing Christianity. They are confused, even horrified sometimes, by this free um, gift of total forgiveness that God um, uh, seems to offer. And in particular, that, that they are concerned that that leaves Christians just, just um, uh, to wander off into all kinds of sin. And um, you could be forgiven for thinking that by looking at Romans. We, we worked through Romans chapter 1 uh, chapters 1 to 4, and we saw that Paul builds an argument, first of all, that nobody gets right with God through leading a good life. No one can lead that good a life. But then, he said in Romans 3, there is this, this free gift of, of, of forgiveness, this gift of righteousness, as he describes it, of being put right with God won for us by Christ's death on the cross, dying for our sins in our place, that we uh, acquire for ourselves simply by holding out empty hands, by putting our trust in Jesus, by exercising faith in Christ. Um, Romans uh, chapter 5 then continued that, by saying, by saying this free gift of forgiveness that, that, that God offers us um, gives leads to life. We saw that Romans 5 to 8 is going to be exploring. The big question is, what, what is the life then that God gives to those who are put right with him? And he has been establishing, first of all, that that, that status of righteousness leads on to um, life via peace with God. But, but chapter 5, verse 1, for instance. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we are forgiven, effectively, put right with God. We have peace with God. Or in verse 10, um, uh, he, uh, he says we are reconciled to God. So he's saying that sort of decision that God makes that we are forgiven, leads, in, of course, to a restored relationship with God. We have peace with God. We are reconciled to God. And that, in turn, he's been saying in chapter 5, leads to life. 
Indeed, he's used this in the second half of chapter 5. He's used this extraordinary image that we were, um, we were starting to explore la- last week. He said, effectively, all human beings are locked together, bound together, almost as one great big organi- uh, organism. And uh, by nature, we have our first ancestors, Adam and Eve, at the top, and we are locked into the pattern of behaviour that they established in, uh, um, before history began. Um, and he said what Christ has done is he's created a whole new humanity and become the head of that new humanity so that human beings are taken out of that family and brought into this new humanity with Christ as the head. And all of that, he says, at the end of chapter 5, is by grace. Just as sin reigned in death, that was over here, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. In other words, that that righteousness, that being put right with God, came from grace and ultimately it leads to eternal life. You are given life because you are forgiven and placed in this new humanity, he's saying. And so my Muslim friend says, yeah, yeah, I get it, I get it, I get it, I understand what you're saying. So this person over here who's in this new humanity, now they can do whatever they like because all of their sins are forgiven and they are secure, locked into that new humanity. The Apostle Paul expects exactly that response at this point. Do you see that? Chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? It's a sort of... It's an extreme form of the argument. If If this block is ruled by grace, then, um, then by adding a bit more sin into our lives, then the grace just has to get bigger, doesn't it? If we're saying that people are locked into this new humanity. And Paul says, absolutely not. By no means. So this evening we're going to see why my Muslim friends... And Paul's hearers would be wrong to conclude that Christians, therefore, are free to just continue in sin. In fact, he's going to say the opposite. He's going to say say that what Christ does for us and has done for us not only brings us full forgiveness, not only brings us into this new humanity, in this new status, he transforms us and gives us an ability to overcome sin that we never had while we were over there. Belonging to this new humanity in Jesus then really does change us. The first thing he says in verses 3 and 4 is that Christian baptism symbolises what has happened to believers. Don't you know that all of us who were baptised into Christ Jesus were baptised into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, 
we too may live a new life. And before we, we, we start to examine the, the substance of, uh, of his argument, I, I do need to just spend a few minutes making what I think is an important observation from the, these verses. The Apostle Paul considers that baptism is a really important part of being a Christian. His whole, his whole argument is, is um, based around the assumption that Christians are baptised. Um, uh, true, baptism doesn't save us. He's already explained really clearly that it is, it is putting our faith in Christ which saves us. But uh, here, he is absolutely clear that he cannot imagine someone whom he would call a Christian who is not baptised. Did you, know, did you notice he says, for instance, um, don't you know that all of us who were baptised into Christ Jesus were baptised into his death? That, that, that is, there's not a person who's a Christian who wasn't baptised. And every baptised Christian, there's a certain, uh, there's a certain set of, of things that he can say about them, which he will say in just a, just a minute. Baptism... And being a Christian, for Paul, uh, are coterminous. He uses um, baptism sometimes just as a sort of shorthand for saying Christians, the baptised. They have a saying. If if you've been tempted then to to think that um, um, baptism is a very um, marginal, secondary doctrine in the New Testament, I, I urge you to think again. It doesn't seem to be the case. It is not absolutely essential for salvation, but it is absolutely central to a New Testament understanding of what it means to be a Christian. And the other thing that comes out of this passage and um, uh, numbers of others um, is that it is, um, at least to me, impossible to imagine that he's talking about baptising infants. Um, the Roman church had existed for, by, by the time that Paul um, was writing to them for, for at least 20 years. Um, if they had been baptising infants, of course those, uh, those infants would have grown up. And it, it, as is always the case in every, in every generation, not all of them would have come to faith. And yet he assumes that every single baptised person in Rome is a person who professes faith. All of us. The, the, only, the, the only possible reconstruction, as far as, uh, uh, as I can see, is that he was assuming that people were baptised after they had personally professed faith. Indeed, the, the uh, evidence is increasingly strong as people... Uh, uh, wrestle with the uh, historical evidence for at least the first 200 years after Jesus' death and probably, uh, probably beyond that. The, the as good as potentially even universal practice of the church was to baptise believers and believers only. They did argue about how young they could be. They were worried about placing the burden of baptism on very young shoulders. But they always 
uh, assumed that it would be on profession of faith. They did argue in the, in the early church, actually, about whether you could be baptised late. They started to get worried about what happened to, to uh, what, how do, do you deal with sins that happen after you're baptised. And some people started to get very worried about whether those sins could be forgiven. So they, so they would leave their baptism right until the last possible minute, sometimes on deathbed, um, uh, because they, 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 were, they were worried about that. They, they'd read the New Testament carefully. They, um, uh, they shouldn't have been worried about that. But what they didn't do, what there is no uh, clear instance of, is actually them ever baptising infants. That became the practice after some hundreds of years for a whole range of reasons that um, we can't go into uh, this evening. But, but, uh, but I want to say to you, as far as my reading of Scripture um, goes, I cannot see that, uh, that Scripture um, uh, teaches anything but the baptism of believers, people who have professed faith. Now, you will know, if you know uh, Magdalen Road Church, we seek to respect evangelical believers with a variety of opinions on, on a whole range of things, including uh, baptism. And we allow people who are convinced infant ba- uh, that, that infant baptism is right to, to be members in, in the church. We cannot, in good conscience, teach that because as leaders in the church, um, we're convinced that Scripture teaches that you, are, you get baptised after profession of faith. But we do try to respect it. Let me say to you, though, let me not soften it unduly. I would urge you, if, if this is an issue that you haven't thought through, I would urge you to think seriously about what the Bible teaches about baptism. It is not an irrelevant issue. For Paul... It is a central mark of being a Christian. Jesus, Jesus gave us two ordinances. The one was communion, the bread and the wine. A symbolic way of engaging with, 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 with heart and mind and body, with our ongoing relationship with God and our need to be nourished again and again and again by the truths of the cross and the forgiveness that we have. And he gave us another ordinance as well. That was the mark of becoming a Christian. Another symbolic act. That Paul explains here. And that's what he's doing. Um, don't you know that all of you who were baptised into Christ Jesus. Were baptised into his death. We were therefore buried with him through baptism, into death. In other words, he's saying, to, to become a Christian, to put your faith in Christ, is to become, as we've already said, united with Christ, and in a sense, as Jesus died on the cross, so we were united with him, as he was taken down and buried, the confirmation of his real solid death for our sins. So in a sense, says says the Apostle Paul, we are to understand ourselves as united with him in that death. And so we died 
to that old life, to that, to that, to, to the, the, that old humanity that we once belonged to, headed by Adam, that we were talking about last week. We died, says the Apostle, because we were united with Christ. That's how we gain the benefit of his death on the cross. Because God somehow in his, in, in his mind and, in, and in, the, in the secret places unites us, binds us to Christ. And then there's even better news, and that's what the Apostle Paul wants to say. There's even better news, because remember, says Paul, Jesus rose from the dead again. We were buried with him through baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. We were with Christ in that grave, he says, bound to him, and Christ broke that grave open. And so every single believer, by virtue of their union with Jesus Christ, now in one sense begins that new resurrection life that Jesus fully has begun to enjoy. Yes, there remains our mortal life, our mortal body, that will fade, fade away and die. But we are, we, we are, I think I used the analogy last week, we are, it is as if we, we are attached by an unbreakable bungee to the risen Jesus. And he's gone through death to, to, to resurrection life. And though we will, in our bodies, die um, uh, again as mortal human beings, we are unbreakably connected to Jesus and so we will rise again more than that though says um, uh, uh, says Paul and has present implications for us because though it, we have to await our full resurrection we presently enjoy a new life there is a transformation that has gone on in our hearts, which is the beginning of that final resurrection. And it begins deep inside our hearts, where, where our hearts are turned from death to life, from enmity to God, to love for God. From darkness to light. From hearts of stone to hearts of flesh. There are so many images that are used in Scripture. But they're all saying the same thing. God does something deep inside you which one day will flourish into its fullness in full resurrection life as Jesus enjoys now. But now does transform you. That's what he's saying. This new life, this new identity is transforming. Having uh, first explained it using the, um, um, uh, an argument from their baptism, he then goes on in verses 6 and 7 to, to, um, uh, to, to explain it a little bit more. Jesus' death, he says, is our death to sin, verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with that we should no longer be slaves to sin, 
Because anyone who's died has been set free from sin. Come out the other side, you live a new life, you can break those old mortal patterns. And they can begin to be broken now because we were crucified with Christ. Verse 8, Jesus' life is our new life. If we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Just saying the same thing that I've said already, that, that the death of Jesus was our death to that old way of life. The life of Jesus is our life, enjoying the new way of life. Being united with Christ transforms you. That's what he's saying. Your baptism is a symbol of that, he says. Um, And it really is transforming of our lives. Three implications. He then... um, Uh, He then draws out, and he will draw out more in coming weeks about how to live a life that is truly transformed. So keep coming back. But let's let's look at how he introduces it. He says, "So, so he says, be transformed by how you think. Verse 11. In the same way then, count yourselves or consider yourselves dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus. He's not saying, okay, sort of summon up some sort of set of beliefs that you don't really believe, that you're dead to sin and alive uh, alive to Christ. He's saying, um, he's saying, think it through, this is your inheritance. This is what you have been given. And it is completely different, you see, from the standard way that people try to live a new life. People try to live a new life by trying harder. They try to live a new life by setting a whole lot of rules in, the, in, in, in place. They try to live a new life by, by setting up some barriers that they cannot, they cannot cross to try and control themselves. And, and the, Apostle, the Apostle Paul says, no, there is another way to lead a new life. Start to really understand and believe this sinful way of life is not me. If I'm a believer, it's not me. Imagine the um, child going to... Uh, going to school for the first time. child from a nice um, uh, family and the child goes to, goes to school and um, uh, the children are a bit rough and they, they, they use swear words. It's really rather exciting. And uh, that child starts to, um, uh, to learn those swear words. And uh, they come home and they think, I'll try that out, I think. Um, and they say, they, 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 um, something goes wrong and they say, oh, bloody hell. 
And they know it anyway in their hearts. They're just toying with something that is not really them. And mum rightly says, we don't do that in this family. We, we, we don't speak like that in this family. It's not so much about you've done a naughty thing. Yes, you have. But it's actually about enjoying being in this family. We don't behave like that. And the child is, is ashamed because they know that. They know that their family is far richer, far, far more restrained um, and doesn't use swear words. And so those swear words don't come into their vocabulary. This, this is, sin is not me if I'm a Christian. I may be tempted by it. I may indulge in it sometimes. But my Heavenly Father, when I come home to him, my Heavenly Father says, Peter, that's, that's, it's just not you, is it? That's just, you know, I've made you into something better than that. You're in a family that's better than that. And actually thinking that through and understanding that really does liberate us. A child may learn through force of of fear of punishment not to swear at home. But they'll still swear at school. Until they get to a point where they frankly are proud and content to be a person from that kind of family. And they can stand up in the playground when there's no immediate fear of punishment and they can just think, that's not me. I'm not going to behave like that. Because I'm confident the kind of person that I've been made and the kind of family that I'm in. Consider yourself He says, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. He has done it for you, and simply knowing and understanding and reflecting on that makes the attraction of sin start to fade away. That's about how we think then. Second implication is is we need to be careful what rules us. Verse 12 Um, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. And note, he's not quite saying, do not ever sin. Sometimes the Bible, uh, Bible says that, and that would be a great thing if we could achieve it. But he doesn't expect us never to sin. He's saying that, um, that sin should not be the ruler Sin should not be the the dominant character of our life. Over here, in this life, it is not possible to do anything else but allow sin, one way or another, to be the sort of warp and woof of our life. But in Christ, it is possible to start a different relationship with sin. Because we can come back, immediately we become aware of sin and seek forgiveness. And because we are secure and completely forgiven, that forgiveness is offered freely and it does not need to grow and become an entrenched and dominant pattern in our lives. 
this side of eternity, we will not eliminate sin from our lives. But the call is not to let it rule our lives. It should be an incongruity. It can, it can be something that, it, that, that when it raises its head is rapidly dealt with because you belong to the new humanity, because you are united with Christ, because Christ has forgiven all of those sins that he saw, past, present and future, and because Christ has promised you and given you new life. Think, count yourselves dead to sin and alive to Christ, because that's what is the case. Do not let sin rule, he says. And the third, uh, the, the third implication that he, that, he, that he gives us is, uh, is let's, let's have a spatial image, is about where we place ourselves, where we put ourselves. Verse 13, Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life Offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. The same verb, again, uh, used three times, offer. And it's a sort of military verb. Um, people, people volunteer to sign up into the army. They offer themselves. That, that, that's how the word was often used um, in, in Paul's day. So he's saying, he's saying don't, don't go over there to, to, to sin and sort of sign up. Yeah? Don't, don't make that commitment. He says, you now have a new identity and you have been signed up and you should, you should respond by yourself signing up to God. I'll fight in God's army now. All of my members, as he puts it, every part of my body, it's to be used in God's army. Fall into, fall into the ranks of the redeemed, he's saying. But then the most important thing he says is not actually these three ways that we should respond, how we think um, and what rules us and where we place ourselves, where we offer ourselves. The most important thing is not that, it is a promise. It is a promise which undergirds absolutely everything that Paul is saying, both here and actually in Romans 5 to 8. Sin shall no longer be your master, because you are not under the law, but under grace. God has made a decision that sin does not rule us any longer. It may stick to us still. It may trouble us. He has not eliminated it by a single click from our lives completely. But what he has done in that moment that we became a Christian is he said, I'm not going to let sin master them. I am their master. And that is not an imperative. That is not an instruction. That is an indicative. That is a statement of what God has decided. He has decided sin shall not be your master. And not because he gives you lots and lots of rules to obey. You're not under law, he says. 
but because by his grace he has chosen to liberate us. Not just finally in eternity, but he begins that liberation now as our hearts are transformed. So what does that mean for us? Surely it means so many practical things. It means, for instance, that I can begin every day remembering, thinking, considering that I am, have been given by God's grace full forgiveness of all my sins and new life. No sins do, the, the sins that I will commit in that coming day do not need to terrify me because I can walk into that day secure that from beginning to the end of the day God will walk alongside me, Jesus will walk alongside me and give me the grace of repentance when I stumble and the grace of life to overcome sin as I ask it. And so I can live a life not of fear but of confidence and it really does change us as we learn to think that way. It means that in, in, in my daily habits, I can consciously say, I give myself to you, God. Let me use, let, let, use me for your glory in everything that I do. Let me begin to realise that eternal life that you have given me. I'm safe, I'm secure. I don't have to work for it, but today, Lord, let me enjoy that new life just a little bit more as I go to work and serve you as I interact with my family and, and, and serve you in that way as I, as I talk to friends as I think about people and things let me enjoy that new life that one day you will give me in fullness let me enjoy it a little bit more today and as we fail in one way or another as we will it's not a catastrophe it doesn't cut us off from God we can, we can seek his forgiveness and come back in a moment. But we can, in, we can embark on that day as a positive adventure of the new life that we are called to. And it means that we have a really solid promise. I remember finding a diary that I wrote um, myself in, when, as I was in the process of getting converted um, and I'd forgotten it for some years, and then I found it about uh, ten years later. And I was amazed to see that I was writing day after day, I feel there is a new power at work in me. When you've been a Christian for, for years and decades, as I have, that, it becomes so commonplace and normal, you almost forget that it's, that it's happening. But it's real. God transforms people. He said that he will, and he does it. I see it again and again and again. And he does not transform people through threat and, and law and rules. He transforms people through his free forgiveness. Some of us here were hearing um, a friend of mine talk, talking about the, 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 the drug addict who, who um, got, got converted 
in another church not, not so long ago. And um, when, as he was talking to the pastor, he said, you know, my life really has turned around. And he said, um, and um, here's the papers to uh, prove it. Because this certificate says I'm free of cocaine. This certificate says I'm free of heroin. This certificate says I haven't, I'm free of, of, of methadone. Um, uh, and, uh, uh, and whatever the, the four things he, list, he listed that he had been able to beat that he'd never been able to beat before as he discovered the grace of God, as he, dis- as he enjoyed the free forgiveness of God. My Muslim friends, I feel deeply sorry for. Because they think that free forgiveness will just leave people wild to run off and do anything that they, they like. And actually my experience as a Christian and as a Christian leader is absolutely the opposite. Free forgiveness, the free forgiveness of God creates in human hearts such a delight, such a joy, such a love for God The people who find it find that they are living a new life not because of threat and not because of rules but because they're finally free. Sin shall not be your master. The new life you have in Jesus if you are a Christian here really does change you. You don't believe it. Just reflect on these verses. Just try to live that confident life. See if it does not cause love to, for Jesus to well up in your heart and the power of sin to start melting away. It does.